women also love giving. That's also cathartic. So there's these like two beautiful sides of this coin that like if we can just like get the guts to ask for help, somebody out there is going to be so stoked to help you. Whether there's like a result out of it or not is, is kind of besides the point, but the practice of engaging and asking and giving is just so powerful. Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Please sit back and be prepared to be inspired. It's great to have you here this morning. I've got Sheena, the founder of Made With Local. Morning, Vicki. We're going to talk about your business at length, but I also wanted to, let's just start with this crazy time we're in and how it's affecting you. I'm currently sitting looking at you and you have tons of boxes behind you. Are you in your house? No, this, thank God, is my office. So we have maintained an office space through all of this because our warehouses and our production facilities were shut down. So we needed to pull all of our inventory somewhere. My husband would probably leave me if I suggested that I'd bring it into our house. So... We have this space. It is morphed now into a distribution center. And, you know, we're just making, it, it's the pivot, right? That's the, the big word. Yeah, the big word of the day. So tell us a little bit about the journey over the last nine weeks and how it's been with COVID. What's, what's happening for you? Sure. So we're, we're based in Nova Scotia. So on March 13th, which would have been the last Friday before our kids were supposed to head into March break, Premier stood up and said, you know what, we're going to lock things down for a couple of weeks after March break. Everybody's going into lockdown, every jurisdiction imaginable, including one type of organization that we very closely in our business align with, which are social enterprises. Nova Scotia has a really rich culture of, of social enterprise, that, um, organizations that provide supportive work environments to people with disabilities. And that actually is the kind of program that runs our production for our food products. So on March 13th, it came down like a hammer saying all the social enterprises are closed. And we were kind of left in shock because not only now are, you know, our kids home with us and definitely our team, you know, we've got many children amongst us, but we had no time to prepare or ramp up or, you know, really get organized in any way to see our production screech to a halt. So this is all happening, of course, and in perfect tandem with grocery POs. We, we're in 800 grocery stores all across Canada, Loblaws, Sobeys, uh, Whole Foods in Ontario all of these grocery POs just start pummeling us, right? Like our sales in theory could have gone through the roof, but we didn't have a place to make a single bar. So that was, uh, yeah, that was an extremely challenging few weeks because we were trying to figure out like how, how, you know, is there any way that we can possibly maintain production? Is it safe to do so? What are we going to do with our kids? Like all of these crazy things that, you know, everybody just kind of, of course, we all kind of saw it coming in like the couple of weeks leading into, like we were all starting to be a little more cautious. We were paying more attention to the news, but it still did feel like you were hit by a ton of bricks for, for us that the, the day for that was around March 13th. So, so yeah, that was the day that kind of changed everything. And so what happened? You, your production facility closed and then had, what did you do? Like, how did you find a way out of that? So we immediately went into like this mode of 
trying to innovate on, okay, how can we capitalize on this potential opportunity? You know, I, I'm, I'm a positive person. I'm a collaborative person. We're very deeply rooted in the community here in, in Nova Scotia. Um, we're a well-established business out here. And we, we have a lot of friends who are in food service and in other food, agri-food related industries. So, you know, immediately we did have some organizations that we've either borrowed money from or have aligned with in certain ways, different um, you know, chamber of commerce and those and those kind of folks reach out to us and say like, are you guys okay? And let us know if we can help. So immediately we just started trying to figure out, you know, are there other bakeries out there that have been shut down by COVID and would like to sublet their space to us or better yet, even their team to start co-packing for us. So we were really just, I was joking with our team and saying like, I kind of feel like a hermit crab all of a sudden, like we've grown out of our, our shell has gotten really tight and we needed to bust out of our little constricting shell and go find a new shell to hole up in for a while. But it was, it's really tricky for us to just pop up in a new space because we are exporting our real food bars all across Canada. We need a federally inspected facility. So that was something that was hard to find. And of course, a lot of people were scared, right? Mid-March, like a lot of people were thinking, I'm not going to let you as a stranger come into my sacred space, you know, my baby and and take over. In theory, I was thinking that that was going to be a really fun and collaborative and easy, I'm using air quotes here, easy solution, but it wasn't. So what ended up happening or what's, what's currently happening is that we were able to work with our production partners and we just let it ride for a few weeks. Everybody just kind of stepped back and watched how things were unfolding. So we were fully at, without any production for three weeks, which again was like literally the timing could not have been more aligned with a huge spike in POs. But what, what's happening now is my husband is driving an hour out of the city every week to go down and help bake. He's like, a, he's an Olympic athlete. So he can like make more bars <laughs> than like 10 people. Turned into a baker. He's yeah. literally, he, he's like, his workout now is rolling out granola bars instead of paddling a boat. So he's going down and like literally like putting in the work and they're, they're running a small team down there. So we're at 50% production capacity right now. Um, and we're just, you know, we're kind of squeaking by, but... Um, it's not a long-term solution. And you have kids too, right? So there's a whole other yeah. element on top of this. Absolutely. You know, I've got a five-year-old and a, and a just turned one-year-old, you know, her birthday party was uh, not a thing. <laughs> she's she's one, so it's not really a thing anyway, but it was, you know, held in, in isolation. So she turned one on, on April 16th and yeah, it's been super challenging. I mean, you know, the homeschool stuff and one of another one of our employees, she's got two little kids at home. She's solo parenting. It's just been, yeah, a, a absolutely impossible scenario for somebody to feel like they're doing a good job at anything. Your job, you're not doing a good job parenting. You're not doing a good job at your job. You're not, you know, for people who like to like excel or like to feel like you're, you know, you, you pay, base your self-worth on completing tasks or feeling like you've done a good job. Like it's been a, that's, that's been a big thing that I've had to work through is you just have to accept that some things are good enough absolutely, and you just got to keep moving. Well, I mean, if this has done anything, I mean, there's so many different lessons out of what we're going through right now, but certainly one of them is just how unsustainable our, the lifestyle that we created was anyway. A hundred percent. It required all of these insane. I mean, just even thinking about you saying that and your husband being an athlete and thinking about performance and you know, like how, how we're just like, it's all about performance. Right. But what about your mental health and what about your support? And I know that you're a meditator and that you pay uh, a lot of attention to your personal growth and being sane in this crazy time. So has it shifted your practice at all? Yeah. So it's, it's funny. I will mention Andrew as well, because I feel like for me, I do have 
a, a foundational practice of mindfulness and, and self-compassion, to be honest, like me talking about the mental health strain of not feeling like you're achieving. Like I personally don't struggle with that that much. The, the flavor of that for me is like, I really like to work. You know, so my, like, I get sometimes feeling anxious about just like, I really want to go to work. You know, I, I love my children more than anything in the whole world, but I really also love my career and my company and the community we've created. So that sometimes has been something that I've had to sit with and be like, you know, this, this time is the maternity leave that I never had with my baby. Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Cause I like, didn't, I didn't have a maternity leave with her. I had to go right back into the business. So it's just like the constant, like I'm constantly just shifting my perspective and being like, but what? But what about, what about this is perfect, you know? It's positive, it's positive totally. Yeah. The reframe is huge, right? Reframing everything is... Yeah. yeah, and for Andrew, where he, you know, his brain, like, do you want to talk about neuroplasticity? Like, he's been an athlete his whole life. He paddled for Team Canada on their canoe team, went to the Beijing Olympics in 2008. Like, he is, like, and his whole family is athletic. Like, it's just literally in their blood. And he's very, very driven by metrics, right? And like achievements. And it's just like, because that's the way his brain is physically structured and the unlearning that needs to happen around that to a certain extent, I think, to be able to like have peace in your life is is the work that I think all athletes are, are tasked with when they come out of being in, in formal competition. And there's, you know, so he he inspires me to be more of a high achiever or more not that I'm not a high achiever, obviously, but it's, you know, we, we feed off each other in, in both ways, but both of us kind of have to, yeah, meet in the middle and it's, it's positive. So it's been, yeah, it's interesting times. One of the things that I am so amazed by is it is in moments like this where you really start to realize how resilient you are and how adaptable we can all be, which is, is good and bad <laughs> or whatever. It just is. It's kind of like, oh, wow, I can cope with anything. Yeah. <laughs> kind of surprising, specifically when you're in a community. And so you talked about your community in Halifax being incredibly supportive. Have you been connecting at all with other ventures within the CEO community or activators during this time? Oh my God. I, I Well, we've said this before, me and you, in like little uh, private chats we've had is like, I feel like the CEO community is like, like stepped into its full power through all of this. I've never felt more connected to the CEO community as I have. And, and I've been involved, you know, like I've been, you know, the whole two and a half years that we've been a venture now, like active within the communities. I'm an activator as well. Like I have stayed involved, even though I am kind of like, you know, out in the boonies here on the East Coast and, and seeming sometimes feeling sometimes a little bit out of the action, but just geographically. But no, I mean, the support that we felt from the ventures specifically, like the sisterhood amongst the ventures has never felt stronger for me. You know, I'm on calls with a different venture about something like a couple times a week. Like this week, I've talked to Emily Bland from Succeed about B Corp stuff because they're looking to get B Corp certified. I talked to Tony about having Tony from Abigo about bringing manufacturing in-house. Like B is like, I have a call pending with her just to kind of like, you know, shoot the shit because she's amazing. And I just want to like, you know, be in her brain for half an hour. Endless phone calls at any opportunity, or I shouldn't say endless phone calls because, you know, of course we all have work to do, but anytime I need anything or have something to offer, you know, the, the phone, we pick up the phone and it's effortless. Is this different than how you were operating before? I mean, I think it's just amplified and I think I need more now than I have in the past. And so I'm coming out and I'm asking for help and it's just showing up, right? And again, it feels very effortless and it feels very available. Like there's just this abundance of support and in a time where things like don't feel abundant in some ways, it just feels even bigger. You know, it's, it, has, it has even more power. 
Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I've been thinking about that a lot. It, it feels to me anyway, whenever I'm about to do something, there's just, there are more people in my brain because I'm seeing them more on these calls every week. There are more connections that I'm making partly because of this. And yeah, it's, it almost feels like if we just reorganize society, everything would be fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. like, uh, but Can it's like, just get yeah, on it's it? like kind of a small thing, <laughs> but like if we just reorganized and got in communities together with people that we care about, like, hello. Oh yeah. Oh, listen, my next door neighbor and I, so I, I live on like a little, a busy little street in downtown Dartmouth. And I have neighbors right beside us who are like the most beautiful neighbors. They're probably in their mid seventies. I love them so dearly. And then on the other side of them, we have a neighbors who have twins of the same age as my baby Thea. So one-year-old twins and a three-year-old. And we're like this like communal little hub family. We're talking about like, you know, like reorganizing our little chunk of the block to try and communally parent through all of this, building gardens. Like, I'm just like, can we just, you know, how can we just, and keep pushing the boundary out for that? Because we, I don't know, I feel like we all need it. We need that connection. Totally. Well, there's something also about staying in place that brings you in a bit deeper relationship too, is what I'm finding anyway, because I, you know, I've been on a plane for two weeks a month, at least for the last five years. And to have that grounding, I mean, it is a, it's a cool concept to say, I'm grounded. Oh yeah, grounded. <laughs> like I'm grounded from the flights and it, it does make a big difference. But this being more in connection with people while we're isolated, which is just, there's so many paradoxes every single day that I feel like we're kind of living in this while. It is a paradox. So let's pop up a level and go, who are you? <laughs> Did you always want to start a business? Oh my God. I was never, ever on my radar, Vicky. I grew up in real PEI. You know, my folks were pretty like blue collar jobs. I'm the oldest of four girls. You know, my family were farmers, like my grandparents were farmers. And so I spent a lot of time on the farm and just, you know, being a little country kid, you know, you don't really think about it. But now in retrospect, I'm like, oh, I kind of, um, you know, I'm, it, part of me is sad that my girls won't have that same experience. They're townies, you know. <laughs> but yeah, so I grew up in PEI. Entrepreneurship was like not at all on my radar. But I've always since a very young age, um, remember being very committed to environment, the environment and like sustainability. I didn't know that was the word at the time, but I was like, I started a club in grade two at my elementary school, or grade three, I guess, in elementary school called Green Angels, which was like, we went around and like picked up garbage in the schoolyard and just, you know, I was like this little, you know, climate activist sort of, again, without understanding what it was um, from a really young age. So I, you know, took all the sciences in high school I possibly could, came to Dalhousie University here in Halifax to take environmental science and was like, yeah, I'm going to like, this is my, this is my thing. It's literally always been my thing. And that's, that's going to be my career. So it, it brought me here to Halifax. And then fast forward a little bit after university, got a job where I met a friend named Kathy and she and I were, you know, shooting the shit one day. And we're like, wouldn't it be fun to like bring, cause we were both gym buddies into, of course, really into food and thought it would be fun to start bringing healthy snacks to the farmer's market because in 2012, which is maybe shocking to people, you couldn't walk into the grocery store and find literally a thousand brands of energy bars and protein bars. There was a couple on the shelf. They were all filled full of all kinds of weird, gross ingredients, and they didn't taste very good. So we started making these bars using super simple, nourishing, locally grown ingredients and bringing them to the farmer's markets. And that was, that was like where I was like, oh my God, this is like, this is what entrepreneurship is. Like, this is a business. It was not on my radar at all. Even in those early days, I think I didn't really even realize what was happening. But the bug that I got bit by the hardest was the storytelling and the brand building of this brand and the 
the sharing of the stories of, of our, the community around us, like that is what totally like stokes my fire and, and continues to be a huge part of what I do in my company. So that was, uh, yeah, eight years ago, we got started at a little farmer's market table. And today we're selling our yummy foods that are essentially the exact same as they were back then at about a thousand grocery stores all across Canada. That's amazing. You're hanging at a farmer's market with your friend, sharing your recipe (laughs) with everyone for like, here you go. So how did you scale that up? Obviously things are iterative, but what was the first kind of like hurdle? Well, the first hurdle was that I got knocked up. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) That's a hurdle to any small business. I got pregnant. My husband and I, we were not married at the time, but we were thinking about starting a family. Didn't, you know, expect it to happen when it did, but everything does happen when it's supposed to. And I got pregnant with my daughter, Ruthie. I had to figure out like, okay, I've got this big old baby bump. I have this business that I care deeply about, which is like got crazy traction. I also have this really boring nine to five that pays really well and has a big fat pension. And I can retire when I'm 52 because I've been working at it since I was 23. What do I do? You know? So what ended up happening was I just like actually didn't really deal with any of it. I just kept moving the business forward pretended that my job job was just going to like take care of itself in some way and (laughs) found help in scaling the business in that moment with the support of a co-packer. So for those of you not in the the food space, co-packers are essentially just somebody that you contract out to do your food manufacturing for you. So I found this organization called the Flower Cart Group in New Minas, Nova Scotia, which is on the west coast of Nova Scotia on the Bay of Fundy. And they offered to take on our production for us. So I was like, great, that's awesome. You know, my belly's getting in the way. I can't do this anymore myself. So I went down and I trained them on how to make our bars. But what I didn't realize in those early conversations was who this organization was and the incredible impact they had on their community. And, and those early days that I was traveling down to train them, this, this social enterprise, I realized that they're employing dozens of people in this rural area who have significant barriers to mainstream employment in a safe and supported work environment. Like these opportunities, if that organization doesn't exist, these people are so far out in the margins. It's just, yeah, it's, they're an incredibly powerful space for, for people to have access to. So in that moment, I was like, oh my God, this just takes, you know, we've always had these stories and been able to share beautiful stories about working with farmers and food producers, which fills my cup hugely. But now like bringing all these local ingredients to a social enterprise are empowering them and teaching them on how to make our bars and, and grow alongside us is just like takes the impact of this company to a whole new level. So that was kind of like phase one of scalability. Um, that was back in, in 2014. And again, at the time, I didn't think about it as like, oh, now we can scale. I was just like, oh, thank God. Like now somebody's going to make the bars for me. Someone can help me because I can't do this anymore because my stomach's in the way. <laughs> Literally, that's like, that was where my head was at. Because again, like I don't have like, at the time, like no business acumen around what it means to scale. I was like, I just need somebody to help. (laughs) So again, thinking just like one or two steps ahead, never really trying to like do the crazy zoom out. And, and to be honest, I actually had a conversation with somebody recently about, would you ever have imagined that you would have, you are where you are today, like a couple of years ago. And I was like, I've I've sat in boardrooms and sat in front of people and now, you know, foot firmly in my mouth saying like, I will never, ever sell out to those big grocery stores. And I will never, ever, you know, just had no interest in, in, in really pushing too far outside of this like little bubble that we had built. But the really cool thing, when you build a business that by its 
simple existence creates a positive impact in the community is if you can scale it in an appropriate way, it is literally making the world a better place just by its ability to grow and thrive. So that's been my, my mission in this company is like, okay, if this thing is going to grow because the market is pulling it along, like people want our foods, people want what we make and they want to align with what we're doing. Like we just need to make sure that every step of the way as we grow, that we're doing it the right way and that we're staying true to the values. So scaling has been a bit of a bumpy ride. And to be perfectly honest, like production capacity has always been an issue because we've been like constantly investing and building capabilities within these social enterprises to like drag them along with us. Maybe not the right way to position it, but to like to bring them up to speed with us constantly. And and so that's been challenging, but also, you know, that's, that's another positive ripple effect of the growth of me with local is that now many of these social enterprises that we've partnered with have much higher regulatory capacity, work capacity, skill sets. Like they're, they're now operating at a much higher level than they were when we first started working with them. We've all done it together. What was it like getting your first big contract with a big grocer that's national? How did that happen? Oh, so we're based out here out east. So Sobeys is a big name. And Sobeys is where most people buy their groceries in Atlantic Canada. And the first foray into grocery for us was a little pilot project that Sobeys has out here and that they do for lots of little independent food makers is to go into like little chunks of Sobeys and do direct to store. So you're almost treating every individual grocery Sobeys store like an individual account. So you form a relationship with the buyer in that store, you deliver right to their door. Like it's very decentralized and very personal, which we are amazing at. Like that's our jam, right? So that was the first real, real leap into understanding the grocery world. And that was in 2016, the summer of 2016, we got our bars into 17 Sobeys in Halifax. And then we've just, you know, really taken it in kind of bite-sized chunks for a few years up until last year. Last year was the year we kind of blew the roof off of things and went from being in about 250 grocery stores across the country to, or mostly in Eastern Canada to about a thousand stores all across Canada. And that was in a matter of like a few weeks. And I also had a baby, like in the middle of it all. It was complete insanity. Oh my God. (laughs) I know. Do not recommend, do not recommend that to anybody. But yeah, so it had been slow and steady and we've taken one massive leap in the last year. And I think at this point, like we're still trying to find like the equilibrium after that, because it was just so drastic. And now we're starting somehow amongst everything that's happening in this moment, trying to figure out like what the new normal is. So you forex your business and have a baby at the same time, which is like, of course, only women can do things like this. (laughs) What are the biggest challenges you're facing right now? Childcare. (laughs) I'm being perfectly honest, like in this exact moment, childcare is like one of the biggest challenges that we're experiencing. I had a friend, a chat with a friend of mine, Amy. She's a farmer. She has an amazing little farm outside of Halifax called Snowy River Farms. She's got two little kids, her and her husband run this farm. She has some staff on the farm, but those are also hard to find. And she did receive some funding from the government to hire farm hands. But she said, listen, I actually don't need more people to work on my farm because I don't have time to, to supervise them anyways. What I really need is childcare. Can I use this amount of money, like this same little pocket of money to pay for somebody to come and watch my children while I run my firm because this is like, this is my passion and this is my, this is what I can do. And they're, they won't do it. It is just completely insane. It's insane. That we have not solved this yet. It's crazy. It is like literally the easiest bloody thing to solve on the planet. It's so basic. And I feel like it's something that like, 
I, yeah, it just, it, it, it confounds me. I just, I have such a hard time like understanding why it's such like a mental barrier for policymakers or for decision makers to just be like, you know what? This is actually a good use of this money because, well, I do, let me, okay, no. I know why, why people are having a hard time with it because child carers are so undervalued and people who, you know, we think about folks who've been hardest hit by what's happening today are people who work in long-term care facilities, people who are working in prisons, people who are working in meatpacking plants, people who are taking care of children. Like these are, you know, some of those jobs, maybe the meatpackers aside, um, are incredibly critical jobs for the upkeep of the economy. You know, people who are, who are working in, in long-term care and health and, and taking care of our kids, like, yeah, just un, un, undervalued like crazy. And I just maybe, you know, it's, it's not uh, attractive enough to people who are handing out business funding to, to say, you know, what this woman, this, this farmer actually needed both of these farmers, the man and the woman, they need somebody to to safely take care of their children so they can go out and work in their been building for years. So, right. To support food security. Hello. Kind of an issue right now. Yeah. What, I mean, absolutely. This is such a moment to have a chance to go. What do we value to step back and look at these challenges? So Childcare number one, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's again, yeah, like it's something that I've joked with Andrew. Like, I don't, we don't need to hire somebody else right now because maybe we need an ops, race, ops person or maybe we need XYZ. And I, and I, but then I go back to it and I'm like, I, what I really need is full time childcare because <laughs> if I can work 40 hours a week and my husband can work 40 hours a week, he also works in the business. He's uh, our, our director of operations. Like, we can do anything right now. Like we can, but it's anyway. So our, that's been one of the biggest immediate challenges from all of this is, is navigating that. Other things I guess are uncertainty, right? Like what, what does the future look like for, for grocery? Hard to say, you know, we're in a, in a grab and go convenience kind of space where we make bars. People aren't grabbing and going anymore. That, that kind of habit and that lifestyle has slowed down significantly. And, so that's been something that's been really interesting. Like we have sales history, we have projections, you know, we've run all these models, we're planning for the future, but at the end of the day, it's going to be really interesting to see where consumer habits kind of settle in post lockdown. Yeah, that's, that's, those are some of the, the, the big unknowns, you know, we're all, we're all going through it. So one of the things that you have is you have these pre-made bars, which is, that's how you started, right? Yeah. With the yeah, bars totally. first. And then you went to this package of the mix that people can then sort of customize for themselves. How did that come about? Thank you for bringing that up right now, because it's something that is just like, it's almost comical, like how perfect this product is right now. It has existed for us and in a different iteration in the past. It's, it's something that we have been iterating on for a couple of years now, honestly. We were calling it our real food bar mix because our bars are called real food bars. So we said, hey, you know, let's make a baking mix so that, well, I shouldn't say we, I was standing in my kitchen one day making bars. Don't ask me why. I was like, why isn't this, like, why isn't this a thing? Why isn't this product? Because I had all these little bags of all these different little ingredients and I like didn't have one. So I was going to have to go to bulk burn and it was just like a hassle. It's like, why, like, wouldn't it be so much easier if I could literally just like dump like a pre-portioned pouch of all these little itty bitty ingredients and make a pan of bars at home like I would with a cake mix or brownie mix or whatever. So that was the kind of aha moment a couple of years ago. And then we created this real food bar mix. And it's really been hanging in the background. Like we've just struggled to get traction with it in that format. You know, the packaging was different. The name was different. Like I was joking, it's kind of like the, the middle child, <laughs> you know, like it just didn't get, it didn't get enough like focused attention. 
But what we decided to do was to take everything that we've learned over those, those kind of beta tests in the last couple of years and really reinvent this product because I feel deeply that the baking category in grocery stores is dusty as hell and that there's some serious innovation that needs to happen in this like millennial baking mix space. So I said, I'm going to do that. We're going to build out this granola bar mix to be better than ever. So we way, way improved the recipes, better suppliers, just more flavors. The packaging is completely different. Now we call it granola bar mix. It's got a big, like a beauty shot on the front of the actual bars. Like it's just, it's so fresh and so beautiful. And lo and behold, you know, it was just ready to hit the market right when everything hit the fan back in March. And at one part, one part of me was terrified because I was like, this is going to shut down this national launch that we have coming up with Canada's largest grocery chain, because they're probably not going to be putting new, new stuff on the shelf in the middle of a pandemic. And, and here we go again. You know, I had a bit of like a, a victim story around this, this product maybe for a little while being like, you know, I just keep trying to like force a square peg into a round hole. And, and here's one more thing that's going to get in the way of, of this thing coming into the world. But nevertheless, I didn't let that thought sit around for too long. And, and here we are now in the world of home baking and everybody and their dog is at home making sourdough breads and you can't find flour anymore. And if you look at the Nielsen data around, which is, you know, a neediest kind of data set around consumer habits, the baking category has absolutely skyrocketed in grocery in these last couple of months. So here we are <laughs> with our brand new granola bar mix, you know, coming and, and showing it to the world in this actually perfect time and showing them, hey, you know, we actually can't make enough of our real food bars for you right now because our production facility is closed, but we have the best way that you can possibly make our bars coming out of your own oven at home. So it's actually been this like crazy blessing in disguise for specifically for our granola bar mix. I'm not sure when we're going to have this air, but I will share the very exciting news that this product is launching into Loblaws all across Canada like any day now. That's incredible. Congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, it's been an you know, of course, an insane roller coaster. But I'm so proud of where this product has come from and how it it's kind of come into the world. And we're seeing already, like with essentially zero marketing, it's already flying out of our e-commerce store. Tons of independents are taking it on. Like people seem really, really stoked about it, and that just feels so good. That's so cool. And the supply chain for that, what does that look like? It's a lot of our original suppliers because we are working with the same people who supply us our ingredients for our bars because essentially what this granola bar mix is, is the one-tenth recipe of our how we make our bars in our facility. Like it's almost exactly the exact same as what we're, we're doing with our real food bars. So it's actually been pretty good. You know, oats have been tricky to find. Organic oats have been at times a bit tricky to find, but we we have a couple of really great suppliers right now that are sourcing Canadian grown organic oats for us. And that's been great. Yeah, no, it's been pretty, pretty seamless, actually. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story today. I know it's crazy. Kids, <laughs> husband driving off, doing his like new rowing workout is now like rolling bars. <laughs> yeah. I can just like picture the whole thing, which is totally amazing. For other entrepreneurs who are out there, who are isolated, kind of on their own, trying to do this all by themselves, can you give a bit of advice about what it means to be, to step into a community and ask for help 
to grow your business and what that does for you? Like just from a mindset perspective, from a business perspective. Right. Yeah. I mean, I will speak broadly, but I do think as women, we are conditioned to be martyrs and to just put our heads down and suffer like to the maximum amount. Like I know that was my experience and it's something I really struggled with when I had my first baby was, and I was like, I have to do everything like the hardest way possible. I have to attachment parent until I can't even breathe anymore because suffering is equivalent to being a good mother, which is such bullshit. And now I know that, but that's a, that's a slippery slope, right? Like, and that's something that I think whether you're a mother or not, that that martyrdom complex is something so many of us need to like so deeply detoxify ourselves from. And I do, I, I feel like asking for help is like, a, is, is medicine against that sickness. Honestly, like anytime you are trapped in this kind of that toxic place of, yeah, not feel like trapped or anything like that, being able to just have the courage to reach out and ask for help even if that person doesn't have a direct answer for you, but the practice of asking for help is so powerful and it's a muscle that needs to be exercised. (laughs) My mother and I are extremely close and I hope she doesn't listen to this, but I think that like a little complex that I had planted in me as a young child is like when she would drop me off at friends' houses for sleepovers, she'd be like, don't you ask for anything, right? Like, don't you get in the way of the parents and don't bug them. Like, just don't be a pest essentially, which is a fair thing to say to like a 10 year old, right? Like, and you don't think anything of it as a parent. We say that, I say that to my kid all the time, like, <laughs> you know, stop being a bug. But I like carry that very deeply into uh, adulthood where you like, you don't want to ask for anything. You don't want to inconvenience anybody. Like, oh, you don't want to get in the way, just like the smallness. But one thing that I have learned from the CEO network and from the CEO experience, I'll call it, is that women also love giving. That's also cathartic. So there's these like two beautiful sides of this coin that like if we can just like get the guts to ask for help, somebody out there is going to be so stoked to help you. And like that cycle that then begins, again, whether there's like a result out of it or not is, is kind of besides the point, but the, the practice of engaging and asking and giving is just so powerful. It truly is. Yeah, You've said this in a couple of different ways, but one of the pieces that I hadn't actually realized how important it is, but it keeps coming up with us is courage or bravery to ask because it does take courage, Mm. right? To step into that until you've like done it 35 times and then you're like, oh, this is so great because I know the other person on the other end is going to be so psyched to help me. (laughs) Well, and also like this moment too of like, what's the worst that can happen? You know, like, okay, I'm going to ask, I'm going to ask for something. If they don't have it, I'm literally not going to die. I'm not going to die of embarrassment. I'm not going to like, you know, just uh, being resilient to like whatever the outcome is, is also part of that. But I think that's like a big thing is like the fear of, of the worst thing that could happen would be like, they say like, sorry, I can't help you or whatever. And like, if you can just like not be afraid of that, then there's literally nothing holding you back. Totally. This is your Buddhist practice coming through goddess. (laughs) Detach from the outcome. Detach from the outcome. Yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks, Vicki. And congratulations on all of the work that you've done to build deeper ties in your community, to have a big impact with the farmers locally, and to get that out in the world. We are very much appreciated. It's an honor to support you. Thank you. Well, and I can say that Made with Local would be a very, very different business and a very totally different kind of space and not not necessarily in a good way (laughs) without the support of CEO. I don't know where we'd be. It's one of the most important things that's ever happened to us. Well, we're not going anywhere. So thank you very much for being part of this and we'll see you soon. Thanks, Gina. Thanks, Vicki. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about CEO, please visit us at CEO.world. That's S-H-E 
eo.world.